So, Victor, thank you very much for that elegant discussion. Please leave us some of those questions for the panel discussion if you're not able to answer them in writing. So let's move on to our next uh, discussant. I'd like to introduce to you all uh, Dr. Matthew Feinstein. He's an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Cardiology and Preventive Medicine as a professor of epidemiology. So he has co-appointments in uh, medicine and preventive medicine. He's a cardiologist and is working at Northwestern University, is the director of Northwestern's clinical and translational immunocardiology program. He's a physician scientist with expertise in immune and inflammatory triggers of cardiovascular disease, Much of his work has focused on HIV as a model of chronic immune dysregulation leading to cardiovascular disease, and he also serves as an investigator for the AIDS Clinical Trials Group in the End Organ Disease and Inflammation Transformative Science Group. And he's going to talk with us this morning about cardiovascular disease and HIV and moving from insights to interventions. Dr. Feinstein. Thanks so much, um, and thank you all for joining. It's uh, it's an exciting group to talk to here because I, I think there's, as we saw, there, there are people from a number of different disciplines and a number of different training backgrounds, but all clearly focused on taking care of people with HIV. So my goal here is to provide um, really hopefully a practical 20 to 25 minutes worth of a talk um, with some questions afterwards. I'll dive into some of the mechanisms a little bit, but um, but but I think you know, I, I'd like you to all have practical takeaways here too. So these are my disclosures. And yeah, the, the goal here is really to talk about first kind of clinical presentations and mechanisms of cardiovascular diseases among people with HIV, um, but then also to, to give you a chance to outline sort of pragmatic approaches to preventing and treating cardiovascular diseases. Um, so really, I'll start with the epidemiologist, just kind of high level overview, what's there. Um, and then afterwards, dive a little more deeply into why. why. Why are we seeing these different disease processes among people with HIV a little more often than among people without HIV? And then most importantly, I think, uh, how can we prevent and treat cardiovascular diseases? Um, and try to get a little bit, a little bit granular on that. But first, I want to start with cases. Uh, these are all real cases. And I think, so I work at Northwestern. I'm a general cardiologist there. I do have a clinic where I see uh, I, I see a, a large number of people with HIV, but this was just while rotating on a general cardiology inpatient service um, at a hospital that has some HIV, but I, w- I wouldn't say has an overwhelming amount of HIV. I had three different cases in the same three to four day period, all of uh, different kind of unique presentations of cardiovascular disease among people with HIV that sort of reflect the varying pathophysiologies um, through which people with HIV can present, present with cardiovascular diseases. So the first one I'd say really uh, represents kind of the, the role of thrombosis or, or clotting in cardiovascular diseases. And this was a 35-year-old with a you know relatively recent diagnosis of HIV, had been on ART pretty consistently since diagnosis and really even, even uh, not, not too long after initial exposure. But what happened is um, he had acne, uh, read some information online that wasn't really accurate, um, but, uh, but ended up stopping his, uh, his therapy 
about a month prior to him actually presenting to the hospital now with chest pain and pressure radiating to the neck. Um, he had some electrocardiographic changes suggestive of some ischemia or impaired blood flow in the heart muscle. And then his troponin level, uh, which is a marker of cardiac injury, was extremely high, was as high as we see in um, in heart attacks. And his uh, his heart pump function on echocardiogram was a little bit low, which led us to ultimately take him into the uh, into the cath lab to look at, at whether he needed a coronary intervention, whether he uh, he had a, a blockage in one of, one of his heart arteries. And what you can see here, actually, um, so the the dark dye here is a it represents uh, the the main arteries going around the outside of the heart. This right here across the middle. And please, uh, anyone, let me know if you can't see my cursor showing it. But this is the left anterior descending artery. And it's meant to go all the way down here. But what you see is this hazy kind of lighter area. And it really lasted throughout the left anterior descending artery. And what it was is it was actually dense thrombus. So dense new clot um, throughout his left anterior descending artery. Um, and so this was a fresh and somewhat resolving spontaneous thrombus throughout his LAD in the absence of really substantial atherosclerosis. So, so he didn't really have plaque. He just had more of a pure clot um, clot related presentation. And so, you know, obviously it's, it's difficult to say precisely what the cause is here, but, but the most likely, certainly in someone without a family history of such early disease, without a dissection or another anatomic reason is that he had some degree of viral rebound and substantial acute and subacute inflammation as well as platelet activation, making him a little bit more prone to clot. Um, in the setting of arteries that look a little bit big, so maybe potentially a little more prone to sluggish flow. A second patient I saw that week, very different um, and more indicative of the chronic cumulative um, cardiovascular associated risk that we often see in HIV. So this was a 61-year-old. He'd had a ton of stents um, and actually had bypass surgery a few months prior, which didn't take all that well. So he ended up coming in from the emergency room, short of breath, and um, and found to have pretty substantial and progressive heart failure. Um, so his his uh, angiogram, as you can see here, just showed or as as it's it's kind of hard to see actually, but showed really small, diffusely tapering coronary arteries. Um, and that's despite being on appropriate treatment, despite being on statins, high intensity statin therapy, despite his LDL cholesterol level being low, he still continued to have progressive atherosclerosis where. If you might think of a, uh, a large vessel just gradually over time becoming um, becoming much smaller, partly due to plaque, partly due to uh, smooth muscle hypertrophy. Um, and then a third patient, different story, uh, also with substantial multivessel coronary disease, but he um, he's had some issues with uh, with substance use uh, really for, for decades and came in after cocaine use with uh, chest pain had kind of a borderline heart attack, I would say, accelerating angina. And so he ended up having a very eccentric plaque, whereas you see in this artery, it's dark, it's dark, it's dark. And then there's an area where there's no dark, you know, no dark dye going through. And then afterwards there is. What that is, is that was about a 99% blockage in his, uh, in his artery. Um, this likely, you know, it's polyfactorial but certainly is polysubstance use, uh, the shear stresses in the artery associated with that, which can be nidises for both plaque formation and, um, and thrombus formation and propagation, all likely contributing. So 
what does this mean? Why do I show these? I'd say these do reflect clinical reality, as, as many of you know and many of you see. Cardiovascular disease increasingly common among people with HIV. But I want to just take a step back and talk. When we say cardiovascular disease, it, it's a compound word, and it has compound meaning, right? So there's um, atherosclerotic CVD, so ASCVD. What we're talking about there, we're talking about atherosclerosis. We tend to be thinking vascular, right? So coronary arteries, aorta, peripheral vessels. Whereas the myocardium itself, which is generally what we're thinking of pathophysiologically in terms of heart failure, that's the heart muscle itself. So what are we concerned with there? We're concerned with factors that potentially influence the size, function, and composition of the actual heart muscle. And they can be um, heart attacks, for instance. If you have a heart attack or a full blockage in one of the heart arteries, you'll get some muscle death distal to that and pump dysfunction. But you can also have toxic, infectious, inflammatory, and other causes of the heart muscle not working properly, ultimately resulting in heart failure. So why do I t- bring, bring this up in an HIV lecture? Is I, I think it, it helps to understand where we're at scientifically and what that means with regard to, um, what, with regard to practical considerations for each of these. So atherosclerotic coronary disease, cardiovascular disease, pretty well studied in HIV. Um, mechanisms reasonably well understood. We obviously need a lot more um, research related to trials and implementation signs. Whereas myocardial dysfunction and heart failure, quite a bit less data, I would say overall among people with HIV um, to the point where obviously we need practical and in, practical insights for uh, any HIV associated cardiovascular disease, but there's actually a lot more room to, to better understand the mechanisms too. So, uh, looking at looking at cardiovascular mortality at kind of a 10,000 foot view um, in the U.S. So people without HIV, the general population is in green here. The um, inflammatory polyarthropathy, so kind of a positive control inflammatory population is in blue. And people with HIV here are in red. And what this is showing is the proportionate mortality. So the percent of people who had a given condition. So for instance, HIV, the percent of people dying with HIV who had cardiovascular disease as the underlying cause of death. That increased about two to threefold um, over the past two decades, whereas it has been decreasing in other conditions. So certainly not surprising um, to, to many of us here, but cardiovascular disease in HIV is becoming a more important issue, more, more prevalent. Um, here's a question for everyone. I'll, I'll give you about 15 seconds. Um, how does the risk for myocardial infarction or heart attack compare for people with HIV versus people without HIV. It's the same, it's a little bit lower, it's a little bit higher, it's about one and a half to two-fold higher among people with HIV, or it's well over two-fold higher. So I'll give you all a second to uh, to fill this out, and then um, let's, uh, we'll stop the poll in about, about now. Okay, well, uh, very, uh, yeah, I, I would say, the, um, this is a, a really knowledgeable group. So nobody said same or lower. Uh, almost everyone said, or everyone said higher. How much higher? It varies. Um, older data, you know, more of the classical epidemiologic data are more in the 50 to 100% higher for people with HIV group. But increasingly, among people that get on therapy quickly and don't have risk enhancing factors, 10 to 20% may be a little more accurate. So um, I, I put 50 to 100% as kind of as the main correct answer, but it's really, I would say the co-correct answer along with uh, 10 to 20% higher. Um, so 
This is looking at, this is some, again, some general epidemiology, looking at uh, HIV and heart attack or myocardial infarction. Um, this is from a nice paper by uh, Jeannie Trianth and uh, Judy Courier summarized it nicely and, and put it in this table. And essentially um, across various age groups, people with HIV here shown here in blue have significantly higher risk for heart attack compared with people without HIV. Um, and this has been seen that the prior slide was in the partner study. This slide was from the veterans aging cohort study where people with HIV are shown in, um, in the gray boxes and people without HIV are shown in the purple X's. And this is on the Y axis is the rate of acute MIs. So what you see here is these are across different risk factor strata. So let's say one risk factor not optimal. So someone with a little bit of hypertension, but everything else, lipids are perfect, no diabetes, exercises, um, no other major conditions, they still have higher risk. And then you, you, you certainly see this among people with several major risk factors where because of higher absolute risks, the curves start to step, separate a little bit. Um, and the next question, which I think is, it's an important one in terms of causal inference, is if you're saying people with HIV have higher risk for heart attack, you should see that um, disease-related factors tend to, that, that there are gradients, right? And certainly we do see that, where um, in this particular study, people with higher viral loads had higher risks for MI. People with lower CD4 counts also had higher risks for MI. And I'd like to just, I want to put these slides here for anyone who wants to take a deeper dive. This has been replicated in a number of studies, um, adjusted for uh, both traditional as well as somewhat less traditional risk factors for heart disease. And, um, and there's a substantial literature supporting it. Although increasingly, this relative risk excess or um, the extent to which the risk for people with HIV is greater than people without HIV is decreasing among those who get on therapy right away who never really have uh, significantly suppressed viral loads. Uh, briefly, I'll just mention stroke here. Um, and this was in the partners cohort. There have not been as many studies looking at stroke in HIV, um, but people with HIV do seem to have a higher risk of stroke compared with people without HIV. Um, it's tough to know whether this was significant at the younger age, mainly just because of differences with the baseline risk group, where the, uh, the comparison group had such a lower risk, whereas here, everyone's uh, absolute risks were higher, that it was tougher for the curves to separate. But in any case, overall, people with HIV had higher adjusted risk for stroke compared with people without HIV. And uh, so what I've talked about is mainly vascular so far, um, heart attack, stroke, but not to, not to ignore heart failure, which we discussed as well. And this is a study we did uh, where we, we adjudicated the heart failure endpoints, meaning uh, it was somewhat painful, but we actually did a substantial amount of chart review to ensure that we weren't just relying on unreliable administrative codes. Um, and we found indeed that people with HIV do have about a twofold higher risk for heart failure compared with people without HIV. This is heart failure-free survival. So the lower curve means less heart failure-free survival, more heart failure among people with HIV in red compared with people without HIV in blue. And again, uh, it tracked higher risk tracked with um, higher viral load and lower CD4 count. All right, next slide. So uh, outcomes matter too, of course, right? We, you wanna know how do people with HIV do once they get a heart attacks, once they get heart failure. Um, there aren't a ton of data 
on this, uh, particularly for heart failure. This is one that was done a couple years back. Again, in the, this one was from the partners cohort where they found that people with HIV tended to have lower heart failure hospitalization free survival compared with people without HIV after diagnoses of heart failure. So I'm going to take a brief mechanistic detour here for a couple of minutes, just because I think, you know, it's, it's, it's of course important to know the whys or have a, have a sense of, of the whys in thinking about how do we, um, and thinking about the how, how, how do we treat this? So, um, this is a wonderful figure from a, uh, a review that Priscilla Shu did of HIV immune dysregulation and cardiovascular disease. Um, so long story short, in HIV, uh, with some degree of immune deficiency, oftentimes viral reactivation, uh, for CMV, for instance, but also co-infections being common, you get chronic activation of innate and adaptive immunity and, uh, and some degree of immune biasing such that you might have less, uh, biasing away from regulatory immunity and perhaps towards a more, um, net pro-inflammatory, um, form of immunity. And with this chronic inflammation, along with other traditional cardiovascular risk factors, this can all lead to dyslipidemia, thrombus, endothelial dysfunction, and ultimately, of course, cardiovascular events, um, which is the purpose of this whole talk today. So just to highlight a few of these areas, these are some other studies that may be worth looking into for those who have time and interest. Again, not worth me, me going into too much detail, but there have been a number of studies that shown recently, the lower the CD4 count, the higher the risk for heart attack and heart failure. And we actually even found this among people presenting with acute HIV, CD4 count below 100, the gradients of CD4 count there still matters, where someone presenting with a CD4 count of 20 compared with someone presenting with a CD4 count of 80 had higher levels of inflammation, but also importantly, higher, uh, higher cardiovascular congestion. And this is in the contemporary era. This was in a, uh, in a cohort I collaborated with um, at the NIH where there's a large, uh, large um, HIV and iris cohort. We also know that subclinical cardiovascular disease, subclinical atherosclerosis tends to be more common among people with HIV. There was one study in a Swiss cohort suggesting this not to be the case, um, but that was people who got on therapy right away. Not There were a number of reasons the study wasn't purely representative of the American population, and the controls were quite a bit older, which may have all... Um, which may have all contributed to the, to the lack of a significant difference there. But, um, but certainly more studies than not demonstrating, uh, people with HIV have more subclinical atherosclerosis. And then one, um, an increasingly interesting area of investigation is the role of the gut microbiome, the role of, uh, tight junctional gaps that potentially lead to increased microbial translocation, all of which can contribute to chronic inflammation and cardiovascular diseases. Um, this is review for almost everyone on this call, but as a cardiologist, I, I think I get people unfamiliar with HIV care more often. And so the question often comes up, what about medications? And it's certainly clear that people on HIV therapy do much better than people off HIV therapy in a, for a number of reasons, but also in terms of cardiovascular disease. And we saw this in the SMART trial 15 plus years ago, where those on interrupted ART had almost double the risk of heart attack compared with people on uninterrupted ART. And we've also seen this in some nice mechanistic studies looking at elite controllers who, despite not taking medications and despite not having really any uh, 
peripheral, peripherally detected, det detectable viremia, at least using traditional um, clinical assays, and also not dropping their CD4 counts, still have considerably more atherosclerosis than, uh, and in this case, this was looking at carotid intima media thickness, but have, have more vascular disease than, than uh, closely matched controls without HIV. This is a slide looking at HIV and heart failure. Why? Um, and this is taken from a scientific statement we had a chance to put together for the American Heart Association a couple of years back. And this is intentionally um, quite complex and beyond the scope of what I can go into in this talk. But essentially, there are vascular reasons, there are toxic reasons, reasons of direct damage to the myocardium. There are traditional risk factors, there's arrhythmia, and there are a number of reasons for this and how it can manifest and ultimately lead to heart failure among people with HIV. So most importantly, these last couple of minutes, what can we do about it? So how do we prevent and treat cardiovascular diseases among people with HIV? So this is the second audience response question. I'd like uh, each of you to just take a minute and um, and fill it out. We'll give about 15 seconds for this. But it's, the question is, and this is more, this is no right or wrong answers. I'm just curious. When assessing risk for cardiovascular disease in someone with HIV, which strategies do you most commonly use? Framingham risk score, the ACC AHA, ASCVD risk score, which is a, a mouthful, um, the DAD risk equations, clinical judgment based on risk factors, or really none of the above. So another five to 10 seconds. Okay, so most are using the ACC AHA uh, ASCVD risk estimator, despite it being a mouthful. And I would say I, I do too. Um, the reality is all these, there's a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, ink that goes towards discussing different risk calculators and risk estimators. Um, the reality is most of them look at pretty similar clinical variables. Most of them use, you know, have slightly different ways of calculating them and what risk they're associated with. Um, the reason I tend to use AC, the ACCAHA one is it tends to be based on somewhat more contemporary cohorts, a little bit more, uh, racially and ethnically diverse than some of the um, derivation cohorts used to create the Framingham risk score or, uh, or the DAD. So that's why I use that, but I don't think you're wrong for using any. I'm, I'm impressed that this many do. Um, so really what we're doing here, just to kind of take a step back and look at what is the purpose of cardiovascular risk scoring, it's not a population strategy, right? You're not shifting the entire health of a population over here. Those are policy interventions, food supply, smoking laws type interventions. This is instead the high risk strategy where you try to identify the people at the higher risk and then you risk stratify so that you can match the intensity of therapy to their risk. And why does this matter? So just thinking about absolute versus relative risk and why it matters. We know statin therapy tends to reduce um, atherosclerotic cardiovascular risk by about a third in most groups studied. We still don't know in HIV. We'll learn more from reprieve. But why does this matter? So examples I see in clinic, let's say a 55-year-old who's got very minimal in the way of risk factors may have a 3% risk for cardiovascular disease in the next 10 years. So if a statin reduces this risk by a third, that's maybe reducing the risk to about 2%. So adding a medication gives them maybe a one in a hundred chance of preventing a heart attack or stroke for which they're destined over the past 10 years. That's not very substantial. Um, whereas a 55-year-old with a 30% risk of cardiovascular disease in the next 10 years, if a statin reduces the risk to 20%, that means there's a one in 10 chance by taking a pill every day that's got a 
a less than 5% risk of significant side effects and far less than 5% risk of really serious side effects. Um, you've got a one in 10 chance of present, preventing a cardiovascular disease in the next 10 years. So that tends to be worth it. Um, obviously these all require holistic discussions with the patients, understanding other risk factors and polypharmacy. Um, so what do we know about our existing risk estimators? Just to make it quick, these lines are where the predicted risk on the x-axis would match the, the observed risk. This we did in the Scenix cohort, and we saw in general, but particularly among black men and women with HIV, the observed risk was significantly higher than the predicted risk. So these risk estimators substantially underestimate risk. This was also replicated in the partners cohort by Jeannie Trion's group, um, predicted risk in blue, observed risk in red, clearly observed risk for atherosclerotic cardiovascular diseases exceeding the predicted risk. So finally, what do we do about this? What do we know about statins in HIV? This is not quite the scale, I would say, but let's say this is the high quality evidence from statin trials in people without HIV and compare that to people with HIV. We've got very, very little and nothing in the way of heart outcomes. The reprieve study, I know we're all eagerly awaiting the results of that. Um, that's a, a primary prevention study, so people without existing cardiovascular diseases. Um, so we'll see what that shows. We still don't and won't for some time have great data on secondary prevention. So finally, what do we do about it in the interim? This is from our uh, AHA scientific statement. Again, it's intentionally busy, right? It's, it's, a, it's a slide worth, worth looking at at a separate time. I don't have the time to go through this in detail, but the key is here, right? Looking at people with HIV, if they don't obviously have another reason to be on a cholesterol-lowering medication or something to reduce their risk, thinking about do they have any of these risk-enhancing factors, low CD4 count, treatment failure, hep C co-infection, prolonged viremic history. If so, they probably are in that one to two-fold greater risk for ASCVD. So their risk may really be a multiplier of that, a 1.5 to two-fold multiplier of that risk that we calculate. Um, slide here, what do we know about aspirin? Not much, may not be as effective in HIV. I don't have a substantially different approach. Um, and then in heart failure, we have very little in the way of, um, we, we have some mechanistic knowledge, have very little in the way of practical knowledge. Quite a bit more investigation is needed to figure out how do we practically screen for and treat um, people with HIV with regard to heart failure. And in the meantime, just maintaining a somewhat higher index of suspicion than in the general population. So in conclusion, we know people with HIV have elevated risks for various forms of cardiovascular disease. A lot of this seems to be driven by immune activation and inflammation, and we need high indices of suspicion to properly recognize and treat this. But we also need quite a bit more in the way of practical studies helping us determine how do we best, uh, best ensure that the rubber meets the road here and we're getting the right therapies at the right times to prevent and treat heart disease in people with HIV. So that's the end of the, the talk. I'd be happy to take questions. This is, feel free to get in touch with me at my email here, my Twitter here, and I will stop sharing, I think, so that we can chat. Great. Thank you very much for that very elegant tour de force across all there is to know about cardiovascular disease and HIV. We have a couple of questions in, uh, that will help us get started. And the first one is the risk for MI if you have a low CD4 cell count. Is this 
referring to your current CD4 T cell count or maybe a previous T cell nadir? It's a great question. Uh, the short answer is both. And that's based on, part of that's just based on convenience um, because the various epidemiologic studies, some have had really good, um, good time updated uh, viremia and CD4 measures, some have not. Um, and really any way you slice it, there is an association where the lower the CD4 count gets, the higher the MI risk. Um, and to the point where there's not necessarily a clear drop off. It's not like at 200, there's a, there's a, there's a clear drop off and a clear difference at 500. There's a clear difference. There's a fairly, you know, I, I, I there's a fairly consistent association of lower CD4 count with higher risk for MI, um, whether that's historical or current. And I think the pathophysiology makes sense of that sort of representing some degree of immune biasing away from perhaps a more regulatory, um, uh, anti-inflammatory immunomodulating immunity and towards maybe a more, uh, more pro-inflammatory form of immunity. Great. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> so I know you had to pack a lot of information into your discussion. What do you know about sex differences among those with HIV in terms of MI, strokes, other cardiovascular disease outcomes? That's a great question. I saw that question from Susan Cohen. I, 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 I should have <laughs> known you'd, you'd be asking that. Um, so it's a good question, Susan. I, I think um, there, certainly for heart failure, there's, there may be a somewhat elevated risk. And I know we've talked about that with Markella Zani too. She does some work in that area. Um, the question is, I think for a lot of these uh, epidemiologic comparisons where you compare people to with HIV to those without HIV, uh, so much of it comes down to what the, uh, what the control group is, what the, and how their calculated risks or observed risks, um, potentially, potentially affect our perceived risks among the, the people with HIV. And the reason I say that is at, at most ages, women have lower risks in the general population of MI and heart failure, um, than, than men, although, menopause changes things quite a bit. And I think we've, as a cardiologist, have done a terrible job of actually adequately addressing and, uh, and diagnosing a heart disease among women. So, so they may also just be more likely to be underdiagnosed. But the reason I say that is some data certainly suggests that women have higher risk. Women with HIV have higher risk for heart failure than you, than you would expect. Um, potentially higher risk for MI. How much of that is HIV related um, versus kind of in conjunction with the risk being low in the control group? I don't know. But obviously, my, my rambling answer gives gives you the sense that there needs to be a lot more study there. <laughs> I think that's a good conclusion. Um, what do you think of fish oil to reduce inflammation? Mm, I don't know. Um, <laughs> you know, certainly you're not, you're not in a um, – there have been a number of uh, – some of the older fish oils, certainly the generic fish oils – there have been a lot of, a, a, a huge number of null studies in terms of looking at cardiovascular outcomes. It does increase HDL somewhat, which may or may not be a good thing, could probably is, but, um, it's, uh, there, the, the, the studies actually looking at cardiovascular events, uh, potentially resulting from that fish oil related reduction in inflammation have been pretty profoundly null with the exception of recent studies looking at the cosepent ethyl, um, which, uh, there, there are some issues with those studies that they found 
you know, maybe a 15-ish percent reduction in cardiovascular events. Uh, and this is in the general population, but they also used a mineral oil as a placebo that was a little bit pro-inflammatory and may have actually inflated the, the apparent benefit of fish oil. So practically speaking, I don't use it a ton. I'd say I have a handful of uh, people with HIV who have significant hypertriglyceridemia um, and benefit from the adjunctive fish oil where I do have them on ethyl, uh, if insurance covers it reasonably well for them, because it can be an expensive drug, but I'm not, I, I don't, I don't do it regularly. Um, and I, I think we're still pretty far away from finding data that will support us doing that regularly. Great. Thank you for that answer. So in order to keep us on time and to give everyone a little bit of a break, I'm going to save the rest of the questions in the Q and a to cover as we get to our panel discussion. So I'd like to thank the audience for your attention, this wonderful talk by our three speakers this morning. And uh, we're going to move on to our break. I'll, and I'll go ahead and answer a couple of those in the chat too, if that's okay. If that, that, that would be great. So <clears throat> we'll come back from our break at uh, 1045 a.m., Pacific time and add whatever time you need to to that for wherever, whatever time zone you're currently in, we'll be coming back right on time. So thank you, everyone. We're going to go to break now. <laughs> 